Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. As if. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Clearly no one else's gods were listening. Verse 7. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased." So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Each time you see the word Lord, there it is, Yahweh. They finally got the right name. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Skip down to verse 10 of chapter 2. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Really? (laughs) The Bible very clearly places Jonah in history for us. So we don't have to do any guesswork. He is confirmed by the Hebrew Scriptures as a prophet of the Lord God of Israel. 2 Kings 14.25 Under the rule of Jeroboam II, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamat as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gat-Hefer. He was from Gat-Hefer. This puts Jonah, the book and the man, in between, in Israel, in between 793 and 753. 
So those are the dates that this took place. The dates of the book of Jonah. The story of Jonah. But some still say, Rachel, this is a whale of a tale. She asked me not to say it. I said, are you kidding? Give up this? There are those who say, of all the fish stories in nautical history, Jonah's is among the hardest to swallow. I mean, honestly, just change Jonah's name to Geppetto, add a little wooden puppet who wants to be a real boy, and you've got another story here. It really, you read it, even reading it right out of Scripture, you read it and you go, okay, this is fantastic. And you might be tempted, fellow Christians, to say, Lord, it's stories like this that cause us trouble with non-believers. Why'd you put this in here? Well, first of all, it, it really did happen. Tragically, there are those in the church, and I hope it's none of you, who would scale back the story. Yeah. Yeah. From truth to fiction. From history to allegory, how can you possibly believe Jonah is a literal story? A man swallowed by a fish, hanging out in the belly for three days? Come on, who could survive that? Well, people have. People have been swallowed and survived. The potentiality of this is there. But listen, for those who would take the story of Jonah and scale it back again to an allegory or a fable or just a morality tale, what they do is gut the prophecy of its entire purpose. This is not a fictional story that God threw in there just to teach some moral lesson. The sperm whale and the whale shark were both residents of the Mediterranean Sea where Jonah and the sailors were sailing. They have been shown, they have been known to swallow men whole. The thing about Jonah is, and this is very interesting, he does swim alone among the minor prophets. He is absolutely unique. Jonah's book is the only one that does not contain any overt prophecy. And yet he's called Jonah the prophet. Oh, I know there's the the divine threat to Nineveh. But aside from that, aside from God telling Jonah, go tell Nineveh, bring their warning, because I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to wipe them out if they don't hear me. Aside from that, you get no prophecy, and yet Jonah is among the prophets. And Jonah is called a prophet of the Lord. But the only prophecy we have by Jonah, written by Jonah in the Bible, is his life. At least this section of his life, this story of Jonah, it's, it's more biographical than prophetical, or so it seems. There are deeper tides in the book of Jonah. Ironside said, This truly sublime and heart-searching book has often been the butt of the ridicule of the worldly wise rationalists and the puzzle of the unspiritual religionists who have never learned the importance of bowing to the authority of the Word of God. Why should I believe a fish story like Jonah? I'll tell you why. Because it's in the Word of God. And because the Word of God declares it to be a literal, actual, true story, not a fictional tale. You cannot find a single verse in Scripture that says otherwise. But what you do find in Scripture and in the Hebrew Scriptures is the declaration of Jonah as a real man and Jonah as a prophet. And there's even more than that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12 in the New Testament. 
Matthew chapter 12. Keep your finger in Jonah. We'll be back to it in a minute. Matthew 12, picking up in about verse... We'll start in verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, mark that. He had been doing signs for a long time now. Uh, Incredible signs, amazing signs. But they want to see another sign. Verse 39, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Right there, Jesus underscores the actuality of the historical man, Jonah the prophet. So Jesus believed in Jonah the prophet, but Jesus goes on. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Speaking of himself. He says, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Twice in his teaching, Jesus affirmed Jonah and the account of his being swallowed by that monstrous creature of the sea. So I'm going to give you an offense alert. You may be offended. Someone here. I hope not, but here's your alert. Beware. Be warned. To call Jonah a fable is to call Jesus a liar. To call Jonah a fable is to call Jesus a liar, and I call that heresy. It's not a matter of opinion, gang. And I land hard on this one because Jesus' veracity is at stake. If Jesus calls it truth and it is not truth, guess what? Jesus is a liar and you better not follow Him at all. But if you know Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, then what He says is legitimate, you got to accept as legitimate whether or not you understand. And I'll tell you, there's lots of things Jesus has said that I've struggled to understand. But that doesn't make them untrue. It just makes me dumb. <laughs> Jonah, both the prophet and the prophecy, was confirmed by Jesus. You might jot that down. Note that. Confirmed by Jesus. In the same way, Jesus Himself confirmed the four most disputed passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. Deuteronomy. You might not know that, but of the five books of Torah, Deuteronomy is the most disputed. It's the one that the the critics go after the hardest. Why? Because it is a book of prophecy. Because what Moses said in Deuteronomy about Israel has happened explicitly over the years. It's astounding. And so the critics who would not believe in prophecy have to go after it. And yet, Jesus quoted debated Deuteronomy to the devil, didn't He? Called upon it as the Word of God. Another challenged and contested book in the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah. Not all of Isaiah, just what some people call Deutero-Isaiah. We talked about this when we studied through the book. Picking up in chapter 40 through chapter 66 of the book of Isaiah, there are those who say, it's a second Isaiah. It's not the original Isaiah, and it's not the prophet Isaiah. Well, Jesus would beg to differ. Jesus read from, impugned Isaiah, 
in the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry to validate his whole reason for coming. So he says Deuteronomy is legit. Isaiah is legit. Jesus warned from disparaged Daniel. Daniel being another book the critics love to attack. Jesus picks up right from it and He warns about the abomination of desolation. He says, as spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and He says, this is something that will happen without question. Jesus said that, not me. Do you believe Him or don't you? And finally, He defends judged Jonah. This book that so many Christians even would throw out or would just cast out as an allegorical tale. And they do so, I believe, to their own danger. Jonah is the prophet who's given passage to Nineveh in the belly of a fish. Jesus is the one who authenticates reality. Jesus is the one who authenticates Scripture. And by the way, Jesus is the one who authenticates reality in my life. He's the one, as I listen to Him, who clarifies things, who helps me to see uh, without confusion, who takes away the clouds and the mist and brings clarity to my life. Jesus authenticates reality. If you're looking for genuine truth, where better than the truth Himself? He who is truth incarnate. He called Himself the truth. I am the truth. You want truth? I am the truth. Absolutely. But not only is Jonah confirmed by Jesus, Jonah, the book, and please watch this as we go through, you will see things I probably won't even mention. Jonah is concerned with Jesus. He's not just confirmed by Jesus, he's concerned with Jesus. The book is concerned with Jesus. Our Lord took the very picture of Jonah in this book as a prophetic type of his own three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Which we'll come back to, by the way. 2 Kings 14 tells us, as we read earlier, that Jonah was from Gat Kafir. Gat Kafir, where's that? Gat Kafir is a small town in the Galilee. In fact, just a stone's throw uh, to the north of Nazareth. Jesus grew up in Jonah's hood. Jesus and Jonah, had they lived at the same time, might very well have known each other because their two villages were not far away in that same region of the northern Galilee. Now, the Pharisees, as usual, were getting down on Jesus. They were picking at Him. They were trying to undermine Him. And in John 7.51, they said... Uh, Nicodemus came along and he said, wait a minute guys, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered, you are not also from Galilee, are you? See, Galilee was Gentile country. A true Jew, a good Jew, a religious Jew would have lived down in Jerusalem and Judah. So if you're up in the Galilee, you're in the outskirts, you're in the backwater, you're among those heathen. And so they say to Nicodemus, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see, they say, that no prophet arises out of Galilee. They forgot about Jonah. Prophet within their own scriptures. No prophet comes out of Galilee. They didn't know their own book. Or perhaps they were among those who marginalized Jonah as a fish story and would not accept that he came out of Galilee as a legitimate prophet. 
John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's almost like a saying of the day. And Philip said to him, Come and see. The point is this. Salvation came surprisingly out of Galilee twice. In the person of Jonah and later in the person of Jesus. And in both cases, that salvation was for Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? Jonah's called out of the Galilee to go to Nineveh, to go to heathen Gentile country and to preach the gospel of their salvation, to warn them against their wickedness. Jesus would then later come out of the Galilee He would go first to the Jew, but then also to the Gentile. And when the Jews uh, dismissed the truth of Jesus, He took it to the Gentiles. Just as He said He would. In fact, it's interesting, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 tells us in earlier times, God treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on He shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Out of Gath, Hafer, Galilee of the Gentiles, salvation came by a Jew to the Gentiles of Nineveh. Out of Nazareth, Galilee of the Gentiles, salvation came by a Jew to the Gentiles of the whole world as well as to the Jewish people. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're going to see more of Jesus in this prophecy. Look for Him. Be aware of Him. Look for the little clues and cues in Jonah that are a type of Jesus to come. One more thing before we get sailing. Jonah characterizes all of Jacob. The book of Jonah is confirmed by Jesus. The book of Jonah is concerned with Jesus. But the book of Jonah also characterizes all of Jacob. Because like the people of his birth, Jonah was called to be a light in the darkness to the Gentiles. And it's interesting because Jonah's story parallels that of Israel throughout the centuries. If you overlay it like a transparency, note this. Jonah and Israel have a comparable calling to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Well, Rick, that's a prophecy of Jesus, isn't it? Exactly. Jesus the Jew. Jesus, who we've talked about before, is the perfect Jew, the personification of Israel. Jesus became what Israel would not. But the original plan, the original offer at least from God was that Jews all together, Israel, would be a priestly nation bringing the light of the gospel to the world. Knowing they wouldn't do that, Jesus himself was born a Jew to bring the light of the gospel himself. So Jonah and Jacob, Jonah and Israel had a comparable calling. But Jonah and Israel also both became a people walking in darkness. They had, number two, a similar sailing. A similar sailing. Jonah and Israel would go the opposite direction of their calling. Jonah fled to the Mediterranean, heading for Tarshish, which, by the way, is on the other side of Spain. 
Israel fled deep into the law of Moses. And sailing deep into the law as far away as possible from grace that they could get. Because the law was for Israel. And they understood it to be such. The law of Moses was not for all the world. It was for the Jews. And so into the law they went. And sadly it was a destination they could not reach. To keep the law, no Jew could do it but one. And that being Jesus. And so they had a similar sailing because the law for the Jewish people, like the whale with Jonah, the law would swallow them and spit them out. Thirdly, there is with Jonah and Jacob a related resentment that we will get to on Sunday. As Jonah, he he begrudges the repentance of the Ninevites. The prophet goes, he preaches, they repent, and he's bummed. Jonah didn't run away from Nineveh because he was afraid of the job. My opinion, he ran away from Nineveh because he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He didn't want them to have the opportunity of repentance. Romans 11.11 says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be by Israel's transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles, note this, to make them jealous. And so there's a dynamic at play with Israel even today that is very similar, parallels Jonah back in his day and his dealings with the Gentiles. And number four, another characterization here between Jonah and Jacob, a matching misery. They have a matching misery. At the end of the story, Jonah, you will see, sits in a pathetic state under a burning hot sun and a scorching east wind, and the book of Jonah leaves us hanging. Just want to warn you ahead of time, it does not conclude for you. God leaves the story hanging with a final question in chapter 4, verse 11. Should I not have compassion on the Ninevites, or on Nineveh, on Gentiles? Should I not have compassion on them? And the story concludes, and we don't get an answer from Jonah, and we don't know what ends up happening with Jonah's heart. And the question I'll ask you on Sunday, and I'm telling you now because I've had to deal with it all week, why not you? The question is, should God not have compassion on non-Christian, non-believing people all around us? Should they not be as high a priority for us as they are for the Lord? Well, you're going to see these parallels between Jonah and Israel, between Jonah and Jesus as we go through. Let's, let's do that now. Verse 1, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh is the capital. Many of you know this of the Assyrian Empire, a large, prominent Gentile heathen city in the day, like L.A. or New York City. Just to get an idea, this was, you know, this was one of the major metropolises at that time. And what I find amazing about Jonah, and we shouldn't be surprised, but as we go through the Hebrew Scriptures and we see so much of God's dealing with Israel, what's amazing about Jonah is God is plainly aware of the Gentiles. He's not so focused on the Jewish people that he forgets about the rest of the world. Now what we have in the Hebrew Scriptures is primarily God's dealings with Israel. 
But his dealings with Israel are, in his intent, a microcosm of what he desires for the whole world. As he calls Israel his chosen people, he says to the entire world, I would like you to be my chosen ones. As he deals with Israel as sons, he would like to deal with all of us as sons and daughters of his. And so in that relationship with Israel, though that is the bulk of the Hebrew Scriptures, don't ever forget, God has not forgotten about the Gentiles. Back in Genesis 15, the Lord says to Abraham, it's going to be 400 years that your people are going to be down in Egypt before I bring them back up into Canaan's land, into the Promised Land. Back when we studied that, I asked this question, why? Why 400 years? Part of it is because he was working on the heart of Israel. Part of it, I believe, is he was allowing the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the flashlights, allowing them 400 years to repent and to come to faith in Jesus. That's grace. God never forgot the Gentile. Just as today he has not forgotten the Jew, so throughout the times of the Jewish people, when they were at the forefront, God never forgot about the Gentiles. Didn't we just study Obadiah? Who's that message for? Edom. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these prophesy in their major prophecies to Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and Moab and Ammon and the Philistines and Tyre. God calls Ruth out of Moab. He calls Daniel the prophet to speak in and through Empires of the world that are Gentile empires. He deals with and works through Esther in Persia. God has not forgotten the Gentile. And so Jonah's life now, a Hebrew prophet, a prophet of Israel, called out of Israel to go into the Gentile world because God cares about the Gentile. And I am so thankful He does. Because as far as my family reckoning goes, it's pretty Scottish. Not a lot of Jewish blood back there. And so I would be without hope. As Peter wrote, I I once was without hope. I once was without a people. But now I have a people. And now we have hope. In Jesus Christ, because He never gave up on the Gentile. God's compassion for humanity comes in waves throughout the Old Testament long before we get to John 3.16. Verse 3, going on, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa, it's also Yafo today, or pronounced Yafo in the Hebrew, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, wound up, or went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Joppa is a beautiful, breezy, 15-minute seaside walk from Tel Aviv. Some of you have done it. Joppa is one of my favorite places in Israel, just in terms of absolute beauty. It's on a um, kind of a peninsula almost that juts out into the Mediterranean Sea, and from there you can look up the coast and see Tel Aviv, and it's just gorgeous there. It's sunny and beautiful, and the, and the water is that Mediterranean blue. And it was in Joppa that the Lord called Peter to go to a Gentile. So he calls Jonah to go to the Gentiles. Jonah goes to Joppa to get away from the Gentiles. Well, in Joppa, God says, Hey, Peter, i got a job for you. I want you to go to a man named Cornelius, a centurion Gentile. Acts chapter 10, read the story. And Peter's not sure about it. God has to give him some dream and vision and, and lead him forward and teach him. It's kind of cool in Yafo today, if you walk through those quaint streets, you will find there a Jonah monument. It's just a big fish. 
It's really cool. Many of us have pictures sitting on the fish, you know, in front of the fish's mouth. (laughs) So that fish monument is there, a reminder of a real historical event that took place in that same city some 2,700 years ago. Jonah fled to Joppa to catch that boat to Tarshish. And note this, he did so, the Bible tells us twice, to get away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah forgot Psalm 139. Jonah the prophet was not thinking biblically. Psalm 139, verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take to the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, such as maybe, oh, Tarshish, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. Jonah had forgotten this psalm. Verse 4 going on. So the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Note this, gang. Everyone was praying with absolute sincerity to their gods. Did it do any good? Sincerity is not a factor in faith. God is not going to one day go, you were such a sincere Hindu. You know? Your Muslim theology was so far off but you know what you you were really faithful so you know whatever to the truth come on in they all prayed to their gods their gods did not hear and check this out but Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship lain down and fallen fast asleep I know another prophet who slept through a storm on the sea Mark 8 24 or Matthew 8 24 Mark 4 38 Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat. Why? Why did Jesus fall asleep on the Galilee as they crossed it in the midst of a storm? Some might say, well, duh, He was tired. Okay, I'll give you that. I also think Jesus was intentional. And that this is not the last parallel of Jesus and Jonah. I wonder if at some point, and I don't know, this is just Rick's surmise, but I wonder if in some of the conversations Jesus had with His disciples after the sleeping on the sea incident, I wonder if He ever said, did it surprise you guys that I was asleep in the middle of a storm? Did that remind you of anything? You know, and maybe Peter said, Jonah! (laughs) Keep thinking about that, Peter, because there's going to be more to come. But while Jesus slept in peace, knowing He had authority over the wind and the waves, Jonah slept in indifference. Verse 6. The captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Now at this point, the captain is just assuming this is one God maybe they missed. Call on your God! Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Now that's superstition. But God allowed it. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. You know what God's doing with that right there? (laughs) He's your man. And they said to him, Tell us now 
on whose account this calamity has struck us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Yep, it's me. And what's cool about this is even as he's fleeing, Jonah hasn't forgotten who God is. Jonah hasn't lost his faith. It's not that Jonah has become an unbeliever. He just doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. No, I know none of you have ever been in that place. (laughs) I believe you, Lord. I know you're the Creator. I know you're the Maker of heaven and earth. I know you have everything well in hand and that your authority is over all. But I kind of want to be in charge right now, so I'm going this way. And that's what Jonah's doing here. And I love this. The men became extremely frightened and they said to him, How could you do this? And I don't ever want to hear someone say that to me. I don't want to arrive in heaven, be it on the rapture or the day that I die. I don't want to be standing there at judgment and have someone I knew look at me and and say, Rick, how could you do this? How could you not tell me? Why didn't you share what you believe? Why didn't you ever speak the name of Jesus to me? How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And while the sailors around him were crying out in their futility, in their desperation because they were lost men calling out to their false gods, Jonah slept. Jonah got onto the ship and got as far away from everybody as possible and tucked in for a good night's sleep because he didn't want to deal. He didn't want to deal with the heathen in Nineveh. He certainly didn't want to deal with these heathen heathen on this ship. So he crawls into a corner. Spurgeon says, Jonah was asleep amid all the confusion and noise. And oh, Christian man, oh, Christian woman, for you to be indifferent to all that's going on in such a world as this... For you to be negligent of God's work in such a time as this is just as strange. The devil alone is making noise enough to wake all the Jonas if they would just awake. All around us there's tumult and storm, yet some professing Christians are able, like Jonah, to go to sleep in the sides of the ship. And so the question is, do we sleep in the peace of Jesus or do we sleep with the indifference of Jonah? Psalm 108. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing. I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Listen, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. The psalmist doesn't say, I'm going to go hide out in the temple where nobody can hear me. I'm going to find myself a comfy seat in the barn on Sunday mornings, and there I'm going to praise the Lord to my heart's content. But when I walk out that door, I'm going to sleep. No. Praise the Lord in the midst of the nation. Verse 11. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Some would call that compassion. Some would say, Wow, Jonah was a brave man of faith. Look, Jonah's taking responsibility. 
He's saying, sacrifice me that you may all be saved. I don't think so. I call this self-pity. I don't think Jonah was self-sacrificial, more likely suicidal. He's given up. Because had it been about the Lord, Jonah would have said, it is me, turn the ship around and we'll be safe. Go back to the port in Joppa and we will all be alright. But he didn't. Throw me overboard! It's my fault! Just take my life! It's like Elijah in the cave. Kill me now, Lord! Just take me out! Self-pity. I could be wrong. But I don't think so. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. They called on the Lord, and at this point, again, that is Yahweh. They called to Yahweh. They call the right name, the correct name, and they say, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. And note this, I love it. Then the men feared Yahweh greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Guess what? These were the first Gentile heathen saved through the work of Jonah. (laughs) He didn't want them saved. He didn't want to deal with the heathen. They throw them overboard and they are so impressed by all that's happened. Look at what God did. Now they're making vows to the Lord. I believe some were making vows of faith. God, you got me out of this. I'm turning my life around. I belong to you. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. All right, let's get back to this. Jesus said, Matthew 12.40, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Trouble. Problem. There's all kinds of debate and discussion about this one. Was Jonah three full days and three full nights in the belly of the great fish? Well, the Bible says he was, so we can only assume he was. Was Jesus in the grave that long? And that's the debate. It rages on as to the actual day of the crucifixion. And there are all kinds of hoops and things that people can go through and say, well, perhaps the crucifixion actually happened earlier in the week. And it's possible. I wasn't there. Was it Friday that he was actually crucified and then he resurrected on Sunday? Because if, if that's the case, then he would have been in the grave Friday. That's one day. In the grave Friday night. That's one night. Okay, One day, one night. In the grave Saturday. That's a day. In the grave Saturday night. In the grave, Sunday, kind of part of the day, that's three days and two nights. So you either got to figure out a way that he got into the grave earlier, and perhaps Sunday really isn't the first day of the week, and that's not when he resurrected. Or, And people come up with all kinds of things. Some are interesting and some are compelling. I heard this one, around 100 A.D., Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah gave a Jewish perspective on three days and three nights. He said, a day and a night make a whole day. And a portion of a whole day is reckoned as a whole day. So if Jesus was just in the grave for part of a day, then that could be called a day and a night, according to Jewish reckoning. The phrase three days, three nights includes any portion of that time. 
That's still kind of stretching it, though. And we always talk about how literal the Bible is, don't we? Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Friday, Saturday, Sunday days, if you put it together, maybe we are talking a Jewish kind of perspective. But listen to Jesus' words again. Matthew 12.40 So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Was He? Jesus said He would be. But we're trying to figure this one out. Let me just offer you another perspective, a possibility. And I can't give you a definitive answer other than the Bible is absolutely accurate and even if I don't get it, I know it's right. And I know someday we will. Think about this. Does the heart of the earth, Jesus said, literally, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Is the heart of the earth the grave? Nowhere else in Scripture is that phrase used to describe the grave. Through Jesus' life and His ministry, He was untouchable. You could say He was unsinkable. No one could throw Him overboard. No one could harm Him. There were schemes, there were plots against His life. Even in Nazareth, they tried to push Him off the the cliff, and He walked right through them. He could not be harmed. He was under His own authority. His power went before Him, and no matter what the Pharisees did or how they plotted, you couldn't touch Him. No weapon formed against Jesus could prosper. No power could take Him down until when? Until Judas betrayed Him. And in that moment, Jesus said, Luke 22:53, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This hour and the power of darkness are yours. And in that moment, Jesus was captured. I would submit to you that perhaps when Jesus says He was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, that He absolutely was, and it began right then. Because if you think about it, it was not the grave that saved me from my sin. It was everything that He went through. It was the moment that He gave Himself over. By the heart of the earth, He may very well have been referring to His sufferings, His beatings, His piercings, His death, and His burial. And my friends, that took place over three nights and three days. And it began on Passover Eve. Now, let's go to chapter 2. When pain comes at you in waves, when you feel like you're being swallowed up in sorrow, when you find yourself deep in the belly of despair, the second chapter of Jonah is a great place to go. I would encourage you to make a mental note of this, a spiritual note of this, and drop anchor in this chapter if you are in a place where your heart is aching. Listen to the words of Jonah. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and He answered me. I cried out for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now listen, Jonah may have forgotten Psalm 139 when he fled from the presence of the Lord, as often is the case with me. 
when I flee from the Lord? I forget His Word. I forget the promises. I forget what He said He would do. But suddenly, here in the belly of the fish, in the place of His worst despair, Jonah's prayer is filled not just with faith, but with Scripture. Jonah is praying the Psalms. Check this out. Psalm 18, verse 6. Compare it to the first two verses of chapter 2. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of His temple and my cry for help before Him came into His ears. Or compare this to verse 3. Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. He just said that. All your breakers and billows have passed over me. Verse 3. Compare this to verse 4. Psalm 31.22 As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. What I'm saying here is that Jonah's song is not an original. Jonah is praying the Scriptures. And I'm pretty sure he didn't have a Bible and a flashlight in the fish's bowels. He's praying the Scriptures that he knows. He is praying his heart out to God, but it is the Word of God that's coming out of his heart. He obviously knew the Bible, and in the midst of his misery, it served his prayer. Verse 5, Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, and they probably were. Psalm 69, verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. Can you hear the Spirit of Christ in these cries? Psalm 30 verse 3 says, O Lord, You have brought my soul up from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Psalm 16 verse 10, For You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will You allow Your Holy One to undergo decay. Listen to verse 6. I descended to the roots of the mountains, to the earth with its, with its bars, was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. He is speaking resurrection language. Even while he is in the belly of the fish. And God has not told, at least as far as we can tell, God has not told Jonah he's going to save him from this. For all Jonah knows, he is going to die there. He will be digested there. And he will never get out alive. And even were the fish to die, he would just sink to the bottom of the sea and never be out. But he says, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Even for Jonah's faithlessness, he remains a type of Jesus who is ever faithful. Verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. When was that? While I was fainting away. Not while I was on the ship sleeping. Not while I was buying my fare to get away. Not when you first called me. But in the midst of his despair, when he's fainting away, he's dying. He says, that's when I remembered the Lord. Why? Because misery is often a tool of God's mercy. Because sometimes it takes us getting to the place of misery before we start to recognize what a good and merciful and gracious God He truly is. Misery is not a bad thing. Wallowing in it is a bad thing. But heartache and pain and the billows washing over us 
not a bad thing if they remind us of the mercy of God. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 7.10, the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. Verse 8, Jonah continues to pray, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I love that. He can't sacrifice in the temple. He can't offer up a little votive sacrifice right there in the belly of the fish. So what does he do? He sacrifices with the voice of thanksgiving. That's exactly what we do when we worship today. We sacrifice with the the fruit of lips that sing praises to His name, Hebrews 13 tells us. We sacrifice by our worship. That which I have vowed, I will pay. And note this, salvation is from the Lord. And you know what? He sure is. Salvation, Yeshua in the Hebrew, is from the Lord. Jesus. Jonah cries out the name of Jesus. Whether or not he realized it, the Spirit of Christ within him caused him to call out salvation is from the Lord. Yeshua is from Yahweh. Jonah isn't out of the ocean yet. Again, he prays with no guarantee that he will get out out alive. The only guarantee Jonah has at all is the Word of God. The Word which he knows, which now is flooding back into his spirit, out of his soul and out of his mouth. And in the Word, and in that moment of faith, he realizes there is salvation. Even before he can see it. Why does Jonah pray at this point in his life? Because he finally is taking God at His word. And the moment Jonah takes God at His word, that's when... Verse 10, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. That is so cool. I have, in my sick imagination, seen Jonah on that shore, wiping that goo off, I doubt he ever ate at an Ivar's again. (laughs) But listen, I've made a wrong assumption for years. Perhaps you have too. Don't assume Jonah was puked onto the shores of Nineveh. He wasn't. As a matter of fact, the only shores of Nineveh were the shores of the Tigris River. Jonah was in the Mediterranean. The closest place that the whale could have upchucked him onto the shore was 375 miles from Nineveh. And so for Jonah begins the long walk of obedience. Let's just punch into chapter 3, a couple of verses here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Do you think maybe God was serious the first time? And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now note this. So often our deliverance is followed by the opportunity of obedience. As Jonah's was. He's now delivered. He's now saved. He's now pulled out of the belly of the fish, out of the pit of despair. He's all right. He's alive. And now God says, I'm going to give you an opportunity, a second chance, Jonah. Are you going to obey me this time or not? And Jonah had two choices there. He could have gone straight back down to Joppa. He could have gone home to Gat Hefer. 
But he went to Nineveh. A walk of obedience. The walk of obedience, my friends, it is not to prove us to the Lord. It is to prove our faith to ourselves. God calls us to obey because the more I obey, the more sound I am in my faith. The more sure I am of my belief in God. The more I trust in, trust in Him and my faith is strengthened by obedience. I want a bigger faith. Then obey. It is that simple. I want to be a man of faith in this world. Obey God. I want to be a woman of faith. Obey the Lord. Obedience is your key to faith. If you would believe more in Jesus, obey more of Jesus. And you will see your faith increase. I think about on the shores of another sea, Jesus asked another man who had fled from his presence. John 21, 17, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And what does Jesus say? Tend my sheep. Obey me. Do as I ask you to do. Because the walk of obedience builds up the feet of faith, even in places, as we sang, where feet may fail. Father, it is, it is with obedience we bow before you tonight. And it is in this place that we come to you and we say, Lord, give us opportunity to obey. Fill us so full of your word. Father, this, this fellowship, we've talked a lot about this, but we're on the verge of something here. Be it the rapture of the church, which is our greatest hope, or moving into this new facility, which is also exciting, Lord, give us feet to walk in obedience. May we trust You now more than ever before. May we not get bowled over by waves of conventional thinking, by our own intellect, or by religion. Father, keep us pure before You in the walk of obedience as You intend to and continue to increase the faith of this fellowship and of each one of our lives. Lord, we're here tonight to take You at Your Word. Continue to speak. We will listen in Jesus' name. Amen.